0: Glad you're here. I want you, if you would, to, um, I'm Rick Donlin. Look at this question I have up here and reflect on it for just a second. And um, in a a short time, I'm going to ask some of you to volunteer an answer to the question. Any volunteers? What's the biggest mountain you've had to climb? What's the biggest thing you've had to prepare for, get ready for? Yes, sir. Uh, creating spiritual disciplines in marriage. Creating spiritual disciplines in marriage. Yeah, husband and wife and what that means to become one spiritually after. Everybody hear that? Okay. Okay guy has apparently seen my slides already. Um, that's good. Yes, sir. Okay. You're a military officer and you had. Okay. And you had. Uh okay. When you say under your charge, what, what did that mean? So it's a it's a l- probably too long question to answer, but like, what does a platoon sergeant have to do to prepare to take care of 36 guys? A. Train them, to make sure they're ready to go. B. Uh, facilitate all their needs. And C. Get them home. All right, let's have a vote here. Who thinks that he actually facilitated all the needs of 36 young men? <laughs> okay. All right, that's a good answer, though. How, does, how did one prepare to enter into spiritual disciplines with one's wife? Wife to be, or? Wife. Wife, yeah, okay. What was the question? How'd you do it? How'd you prepare? Uh, not much preparation. It's a battle right now. I'll go of those spiritual people. Okay, that's a present challenge, then. Anybody else want to add a third before we move on? Yeah, sure. Okay, where'd you move to? Peru. Four kids, under seven years of age, cultural switch. How did you prepare for that? So that's really helpful, too. So thank you for those answers. Um, this is the biggest thing I ever had to prepare for, although I was too young to really understand how profound marriage is. Thank you for your answer, because um, next week I'll be, uh, celebrating, we'll be celebrating our 28th anniversary. Yeah, that, that is good. Thank you. She still wears those shoes every day. Um but um, the reality is we were engaged relatively short time, and we spent most of the time preparing for this one event that lasted for about 45 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. Okay. Is there anyone in the room who's engaged now? Okay. Do you have How big is the binder? Oh, there's multiple. Yeah, multiple binders. <laughs> okay. So tell us what's, what's in at least one binder. We have a color binder. Okay. There probably are multiple binders then. All right. Let me, let me push a little. Look, I just ripped this off the Internet while I was getting the talk ready uh, recently. Like, this is the beginnings of a checklist, and this is only where you start one year out and eight months out. And I could show you the multiple times that come later than that. So um, this is one argument as a parenthesis for sh- having a really short engagement. All right, which is what I did, and my mother-in-law didn't really like it, but it's still not a bad idea. But it literally there's a there's a work through problem. This is almost just slightly less complicated than landing a man on the moon nowadays, right? Okay, and the the point I want to make is it all comes down to the day, and you want the day to go right. You want the day to go right. We want the day to go right for her, don't we? Right weather, and the photographer, and the videographer, and um, we want the speeches to go right, and we don't want any birds to die from eating rice, and there's five million things that have to happen for that day to go right. In reality, then you get married, okay? And this is not a reflection on my marriage. I married, that was the smartest thing I ever did, and the greatest, 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 Person ever is married to me, and i 'm sorry for every other man on the planet, but this is what happens after you get married things things happen, and you, you didn 't know it, but uh, maybe a husband is listens to his mother a little too much now that even though he 's married or there 's financial problems or there 's disagreements about education in the future, and there 's perhaps different expectations about what intimacy might be like in marriage and That happens sometimes. And so there are all manner of difficulties that happen after I do and the buzz wears off. Would you agree with that, married people? Yes. Okay, good. All right. And what I wish I had done, even though it was a short, short uh, engagement, is I wish I would have gone deeper into knowing my wife and getting, having intimacy with her and sort of preparing for the things that were going to happen. And knowing her better so that when conflict arose or difficulties happened, that I would be in a better place to manage that. It all worked out okay, but I think you know where I'm going. Um, we heard our sister from list the things that had to happen before she got to Peru, including a trip to Europe and other things like that, conferences and trainings, and that's the truth. That's the reality of preparing to be a missionary. There's an unbelievable number of things you've got to do. It doesn't matter which agency you're with. So I just pulled this off of the agency that our people in Memphis have mostly gone with, because we're secretly a Southern Baptist church, our house churches are. But there are multiple steps, multiple conferences, multiple interviews, assessments, analyses. You've got to get theological training, at least to some degree for most agencies. There is an incredible long list of things Binders full of stuff to do to be a missionary. And my argument today is that we're missing, we're happy. This is, the, this is the equivalent to the wedding day when we put our hands on our missionary that we send out and we put him on a plane. But that's just the beginning, right? And just as there are a host of natural and in some ways predictable difficulties that come about in the, early in a marriage, the same thing's true about being a missionary. And my argument here, what we're trying to do here to talk to us all here, especially potential missionaries, is to realize there's lots of important things, and we can get worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Okay, and you recognize that from the story of Martha and Mary, or Mary and Martha. Yes, you need language training. You've got to raise support. Yes, you've got to do some uh, you got to learn how to drive a stick shift if you're in some parts of the world, and you got to get your shots. And But what you really need is to know Jesus deeper, okay? because when it's going to happen, and it's going to happen, that's what's going to be the most important thing. And so in the midst of all the other busy things, this is nothing but a reformulation of the themes that we've been pounding at this conference for years, which is, Know the Lord. Beg to know the Lord. Draw yourself into the presence of God. Nothing else is nearly as important. Okay, so um, I have never lived overseas more than a few weeks at a time. I... um. Here at the imitation of the conference people because they 're kind, but also because i 've gotten to be part of a community, one of the leaders of a community in Memphis, Tennessee, a little no place, a little flat, poor Mississippi Delta sack of love <laughs> and over the last uh, fifteen years or so, we have sent out many, many people to the, some of the most difficult fields in the world and We've gotten to be associated with other people in this room who do similar work to us. And so we have seen what it takes to prepare people to get overseas and have done that. This is the most recent crop of folks from uh, one of the better-known agency sending agencies with the candidate school where this is required for Memphis people. You have to have either a piece of Memphis Grizzly clothing or you can just save time and get the tattoo right away and that all right, so if we're going to foster intimacy with Jesus, i got nothing new that the church hasn't told you for two millennia. Like, There's basically three parts to this talk, and I don't know if we're going to get to the third. There's the Bible, the Word of God. There's prayer. And there's the body, or the church. Those are the three things. Those are the three places. You could say to me, what about the sacraments? And I would say that goes with the church. And you could say to me, you don't worship the Bible, you worship Jesus, right? And I would say, shut up, that's a stupid argument. This is, this is the way the church has taught everyone for generations. And the truth is, if we're successful as missionaries, when we create new disciples, when the Holy Spirit creates new disciples, he will use the Bible and prayer and the body to transform them. Everything okay? All right. So, let's talk about the Bible. Um, Forty authors over more than a thousand years. Sixty-six books in the New Testament. Thirty-nine, I'm sorry, sixty-six total books. Thirty-nine in the Old Testament. Twenty-seven in the New. Do you know those things? Okay, good. Yeah. It may not be that super important to know, but the next numbers are a little more practical. There's 1189 chapters 929 of them in the OT, 260 in the New Testament. Weird thing happened to me here at this conference in 2011. I was in a stairwell by the, coming down a stairwell by the um, display hall, and two women approached me who I don't think I'd ever met before. Maybe they're in the room today. If you are, I want you to identify yourself. And one of them timidly came up to me, and she gave me a piece of paper she said, this is for you. And then they left. And it was a little piece of paper about this big. And it was a message from God to me. It said, I believe this is a message for you. And then it described a candle burning and wax coming. And it was a beautiful story about the cost of shining and burning and wax and what God does, does us with wax. And it had this sentence in there with, with him, with him. I am pleased. Goosebumps. Okay? I came home with my little piece of paper and I showed my wife. I said, I got a letter from Jesus. <laughs> okay? And I've got 67 books in my Bible now, which is not true. I pull that note out sometimes. There's more to it than I've told you. Probably no more than two, two or three times a year. And I do believe. That God speaks to people through dreams and prophecies and prophets. And I treasure that. But this is what I know. This morning, when I slogged my way through 2 Samuel and a couple of Psalms and the last three chapters of Galatians, God spoke to me. I got word from God. And that happens every day for Christian disciples. Because the way over every other way that the Holy Spirit communicates the truth of God to us is the Holy Spirit in the Bible connects with the Holy Spirit in our minds and our hearts and changes us magically. Nothing else does that. Nothing else can do that. Again, in my own life and in the example of new disciples, when you see someone put their faith in Jesus and they have faith, the thing that turns them from a brand new, basically a person who's been living in the world all their life and transform them, transform them into a citizen of the kingdom of God is when they read and obey the Bible. It is the Holy Spirit getting inside of you. So whatever your anatomic favorite way of understanding the core of you, whether it's your brain or your heart, and of course it's both, or your soul or your strength... The way Jesus Christ's new life is communicated to us and transforms us is most powerfully accomplished by the Bible and its work in our lives. Do you believe that? Okay. Um, I'm involved in a book club, which I like very much, with uh, Christian people in Memphis. And we read different books from different traditions. And I'll be honest with you, I know it's not a new thing, but there are increasing attacks on the Bible's reliability and truth. Again, this is 2,000 years old also. But, so we're reading books with people different approaches. And there's podcasts like The Bible for Normal People or Regular People. I don't know if you've heard that one. Like, there's a subtle skepticism and doubt in this place where people put themselves above the Bible, that they're smarter than the Bible and they can interpret the Bible and... It's, it's subject to their wisdom and their authority. That's insane. Okay? I know that this is the Bible speaking in defense of the Bible, but I don't care because I know it's true. So this is the Apostle Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is reliable and true. Okay, but we have a problem. Over the years in Memphis, we hosted many medical students and residents Uh, in our inner city communities. We had guest houses, health centers that we would have them work in. And when I was in town regularly, I would try to invite the students over to my home for breakfast during their time. It didn't get done all the time, but it happened a lot. And I got in this habit after I got to know the students. They came from across the country. These are really bright kids, people who want to serve the poor, people who identify themselves as disciples and are going to take time out of their training to come live and work in the inner city of Memphis. But I would say that less than a third of them had a regular pattern of Bible reading when I asked them about it. Does that surprise you? It does. It surprises you? Um, when they did read the Bible, they went right to the sweets table. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? So what's your, when you got to have it, you know, what, where, are you, where are you going? Psalms. What else? Philippians. Philippians. I need me some Philippians, man. <laughs> Got to rejoice in the Lord right now. What else? What's your favorite? Romans. Romans? Ooh, some hardcore people in the room? <laughs> Presbyterians here and there. <laughs> okay, so people have different tastes. You know, some twenty three. All right, but it's good. This is a good thing. This is a good instinct. But that's not what we're supposed to do, right? Like we're supposed to eat our vegetables. Also. So, I listed some of my vegetables. <laughs> okay? I, I, there's a joke. I, I think it's funny. Like, if you're on a desert island and you have, you could choose either to take War and Peace or Habakkuk. Which do you take? And the answer is I take Habakkuk because I already read War and Peace. <laughs> All right. This is the mystery of the Holy Spirit as an editor. What I have here is a visual depiction of, of basically uh what's the word I want to use? Uh chain reference Bible. Okay? So if you look at this image, down here at the bottom, those white lines that are reaching down, each one of those lines is one of the eleven hundred and eighty-nine chapters of the Bible. So on the far left is Genesis 1-1, and on the far right is Revelation 22. 22- yeah, Revelation twenty-two. What's the and the length of the the line downward corresponds to the length of the chapter in verse numbers. So what do you think that long one in the middle is? Psalm nineteen, one nineteen, which looks like it's in the middle, but actually numerically the middle is Psalm one seventeen, two before, and that's the shortest. Ooh, that's scary. Okay. The main point I want you to see is how interconnected all of this story is. The New Testament and the Old Testament, the prophets, even the parts that you don't think you like because they're not acquired tastes yet, or maybe they are acquired tastes, but they're not as you don't go to them very often. It's all an intertwined, beautiful narrative and it all speaks the truth. Even though it's forty different authors over a thousand years. All right, Uh, my apologies to those who've heard this analogy before. This is a war movie, Saving Private Ryan. It's a fictional story, Steven Spielberg's story, of a mother who's got, I can't remember if it's four or five sons. Four sons, thank you. And three of them have already died in World War II around the time of the D-Day invasion. And the last remaining son, the Defense Department decides that they're going to extract him so that this woman doesn't lose all four of her sons in the war. And so Tom Hanks is the everyman officer who's got to go in and extract this guy. And they go in at D-Day. It's an amazing sequence to see at the beginning of, this, of the movie. And they find this Ryan private hold up with his group, his squadron, or his bunch of soldiers in a little French town, And they're trying to defend it from the Germans. If you understand what happened with D-Day, Germany was occupying all of Europe and had set up Europe almost as a fortress. And they knew that if the Allies, especially the Americans, could get in, it would probably be the end of the war. And they now knew in the movie and in real life with the D-Day invasion that they had to try to shove the Allies back into the ocean if they could. So the Germans are coming hard, and the Allies are trying to come in. And stuck in the middle in this little town is this guy whose brothers are dead and a group of soldiers who are coming to try to get him out. Okay. And they've got little guns, and the Germans have tanks, those kind of tanks. And they have this conversation. This is Tom Hanks with his back to you. And they're saying, look, how are we going to defend this city, this little town, because we only have these small rifles, and these guys have tanks. And does anybody remember what Tom Hanks says? He says, we're going to use sticky bombs. And the soldiers say, what the heck is a sticky bomb? And Tom Hanks says, you take some standard compound explosive, and you put a fuse in it. And you put some axle grease on it, and you put it in a standard GI sock. And when the tank comes by, you stick it up on the tread of the tank and ignite it, and it blows the treads off the tank. And that's how you disable a tank. And everybody looks at Tom Hanks. And they say, where on earth did you come up with that? How do you even know that? Do you remember what he said? What did he say? He said, you morons, this is how you do it. It's in the basic field manual that every one of you losers got when you checked into the army. You guys get my analogy yet? (laughs) Okay, and it's a real analogy. There are people in this room who have been overseas. There are people in this room involved in ministry in difficult places. We could have witnesses stand up and tell you, like, when it got hot, the Bible helped me. The Bible was a guidebook. It was a field manual. It gave me clear direction and encouragement like nothing else. It's another reason, practically speaking, if you have these ambitions, to be, to have your head soaked in it. To understand the Bible, so that when the tanks are coming, you can make sticky bombs. Okay, almost through with the Bible. I'm from New Orleans. I challenge anyone... They think there's another city, at least in the United States, with better food and more diverse food, and food designed to kill you by your 45th birthday. (laughs) Awesome food in New Orleans. And I grew up loving to go to restaurants, and some of the best restaurants in the country, I think. I still love it. Now I know some of my friends here, like John David Williamson, is a real foodie. Some of y'all are foodies. We confess this sin to the Lord on a regular basis. (laughs) Why do we love restaurants? Because someone is super skilled. It's got all kinds of experience and ingredients and time and other people. And they can put together this amazing meal. It even looks beautiful. You feel bad about eating it sometimes. Not for long do you feel bad about eating it, but okay. So, some of you guys love you some John Piper podcasts. Yeah? Some of you can spew some Tim Keller, left and right. Or you love Francis Chan, or who else do you love? Who do you love? St. Matthew? Tim Matthews. Tim Matthews. Okay. Who's that? So that's awesome. Great example. Thank you. Okay. We should listen to that. If you're going to be overseas, you can still listen to that. But Here's the truth. You need yourself to be able to get in the kitchen and make some mac and cheese for you. Do you see what I mean? Like, you got to get in there. Because day to day, there's nothing more important than you being able to, in a posture of humility, open that Bible and pray and have the Holy Spirit speak to you so that you can learn without having to have Tim or John or whoever. Go to a restaurant sometimes, but day by day, most of your meals, most of your nourishment needs to come from you learning how to do this yourself. And there's really not a shortcut to that. Okay, what are the barriers? Honestly, what are the barriers to you being better versed and deeper committed to the Bible? if you're honest, with 50 of your closest friends here? Disobedience. Disobedience. Distraction. Distraction. Desire. Desire. We're using only D words if you haven't caught on. <laughs> Laziness. Laziness is an L word. That's a, What else? Pride. pride. What do you mean by pride? Okay. All right. Here's what I would say to the kids and myself. You need a time and a place. Like, maybe this is too fundamental for everybody in the room, but I don't think so. And some of us, young moms, or not even so young moms, people who work in ERs or residents who have weird shifts, like it's hard to pick a steady time and place. Nonetheless, you've got to commit to a time and a place. That's like the first thing that's going to happen if you're going to do this. Have you got a time and a place? All right, and then you got to have a plan. So I'm just going to tell you mine. You're free to take it or leave it. It's a plan. I'm only being descriptive now. I am being prescriptive and telling you you need the Bible, but I'm just describing what I do. All right, and I already told you. Every morning I try to read a couple of chapters from an Old Testament book and a couple of Psalms and one or two from the epistles and one or two from the Gospels. And so on a short day I get only five or six chapters and on a longer day I might get eight. I'm a medium reader and I've timed this. Like, I can do this in less than 20 minutes a day. Now some of you are saying, oh, but you're not studying the Bible. Okay, maybe. But I'm reading it. Every day, now, I've ground through the Bible 30 times in my uh, Christian life. And at other times, I do stop and try to even memorize sections of it. But if you're not reading it, this is a way to read it. Okay? And if you do the numbers, all you've got to read is about 3.1, 3.2 chapters a day. And you can get through the whole Bible, all 1,193 chapters in a year. Most of us have on our Bible apps a reading plan that you can choose. At least the, my ESV one does. Shout out to the Presbyterian, right? So make a plan that includes your vegetables, that includes Habakkuk. <sighs> okay, let's get get rolling. When I um, was 17 years old, I was a dope smoking, football playing idiot in high school, uh, really not a good human being. And these guys on my football team started to try to evangelize me. They were Church of Christ guys. I don't know if y'all are familiar with the Church of Christ, but their evangelism strategy was pretty subtle. It was like, hey, you Mary worshiping Papist, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Engaging, right? (laughs) So as weird as that is, that's how I began to read the Bible. And it was honestly as if a switch got flipped from off to on. And suddenly what was before ridiculous to me or meaningless to me was bright and shiny and desirable. And it was the Bible that led me to be baptized and the Bible that I read through. Somebody gave me a little tired paperback NIV New Testament. I think I burned through it three times in that first year. The other thing that happened is this youth pastor told me I needed to have a quiet time, which I'd never heard of before. What does that mean? I stand in the corner? Or... <laughs> but he explained to me, no, no, you're gonna you're gonna read your Bible and you're gonna pray. And then I got introduced to this acron- acronym. Acronym. Does anybody use this? Okay, so ACTS. This is how you pray, Rick. You. Pray prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So, it's not a bad plan. I used it for years. And then I was reading the New Testament, and I came across this, and it struck me. Like, one day Jesus is praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John, meaning John the Baptist, taught his disciples. And so it occurred to me that the smartest person who ever lived, ever, had the question posed to him, like, Will you please teach us how to pray? And then he gave an answer to that. And it wasn't ACTS, which is fine. And it had been serviceable to that point. And so that's the Lord's Prayer. And I, I told you I had this conversion from cultural Catholicism. That included a Jesuit education at different t- times of my un- younger life. So I know the prayer, Pater Noster, Quies in Caes, Sanctificate er Nomen Tuum. I know it in Latin. Does anybody else here know it in Latin? Because that's the end of what I know. You could finish it. Okay. Most of us have it memorized. If you don't have the Lord's Prayer memorized, raise your hand. Okay. We're going to take that kid out and beat him up later. Okay. Alright. So that was a joke. You're blushing. We're not no one's going to harm you. All right. Sixty-six words in the most common English translation. This, this leaves out the doxology for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever, which is, isn't honestly in the, in the Gospels. All right. If you have it memorized, and all of us but one person do, the beauty of that means that anywhere at any time, with the lights out or the lights on in a prison cell or in your kitchen, you have it in your brain and you can reflect on it. And you can ponder it, and you can weigh it, and you can use it. What's the downside to having something memorized? You don't think about it. it. Okay? So, I started to ask God to help me think about it and use it as a pattern. There are five or six sections divided how you think about it. And it's just like the Ten Commandments. If you think about the Ten Commandments, the first tablet is about the Lord, His name, uh, not, not making idols, or keeping his day holy. And then there's the second tablets about humanity. The same thing's true with the Lord's Prayer. It begins with issues that are theocentric. Just like when uh, a lawyer asks Jesus, what's the most important thing in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So it follows that pattern. It's progressive. I'm going to try to make that argument in the next 15 minutes. Meaning, the smartest person in the world gave us the sections in the order he gave them for a reason. And that they're tied together. That, th- that it's interconnected. Okay, and I skipped over this thing that became a reality to me early into this, this exercise. Which is, I'd heard many times it was a pattern or a blueprint for prayer. But I came to understand it as a pattern or blueprint for life. for Like, what's the most important thing? Or things. All right, so I came up with a thoroughly Christian uh, analogy, right? Some place where you bury your pharaoh god. But I I want you to use. This is not in the Bible, right? Prayer is not like a pyramid. It's not in the Bible. But this is helpful to me. Okay, so if I divided it up, and I did, and I've been doing this for about 12 or 15 years, there's six parts for me. I used to just do five. But I began with our Father who art in heaven, which is the address, right? Our Father who art in heaven is who we're addressing the prayer to. And I picture that as a ground on which we're going to build the rest of the prayer. And if we had time, I would tell you how I've worked through. And this was a Father's Day sermon in our house churches, but we made an acronym of it just because we're old. And that's what old preachers do. But our Father is is gracious to us and has given us forgiveness. And maybe more important than anything else, he's adopted us. And he's transforming us. Transformed and transforming us. And he's healing us. And he gives us employment, meaning things to do with his spirit inside of us. And he's promised us a resurrection body and a resurrection world. That's who I'm praying to. That's who we're praying to. And so, that's what I began to reflect on. Then... We go to the base or the most solid beginning part of the pyramid that the wisest person in the world said was really the first part after the address. Hallowed be thy name, which we've got memorized, but we don't think about. What does hallowed mean? Answer this question. When's the last time you used the word hallowed outside of church? (laughs) Hallowed be the LSU Tigers. (laughs) I haven't said that. I feel it now, though. It kind of rings, doesn't it? No. No. Okay. Roll Tide. There's that guy. Had to come to my talk. All right. That's good. All right. What does hallowed mean? That's a church word, too. When's the last time you used holy outside of church? That girl is holy. Thank you for laughing. That's good. What, is it, what does it mean? You're right, of course you're right, but what does it mean? Awesome, awesome. set apart. Ultimate. Ultimate. What else? Revered. What was that? Make much of. To make much of. Okay, very good. Anybody else have additions? Yes. Magnificent, magnificent is a magnificent word. Don't you agree? Okay. All right. So I just pulled the Internet stuff, and you guys hit it. Holy, consecrated, greatly revered and honored. Magnificent was number three. All right. Anybody in an English major? This is in the passive subjunctive. This is all you need to know. It's not saying, God, we want you to make your name great. It's saying, oh, that it would be that the name of the Lord would be all those things you said, would be set apart, would be magnanimous, that people would delight in you and treasure you, that you would get the honor and respect and attention that you deserve. Oh, that it would be that all of us would set you apart as unlike anything else in the world, most desirable, most to be made much of. Oh, that that would be. All right, which sounds simple enough. But I have a confession to make. And if you're honest with yourself, you can make the same confession. You're largely about Halloween yourself. (laughs) Because I'm largely about Halloween myself. I would like it if other people thought much of me. And thought I was magnificent. My very sinful nature inside of me. this, This is the definition of the sin of Lucifer and Adam and Eve. Like putting God aside and making themselves, lifting themselves up to be like the Most High. So it's a chance early on in the prayer to do that exchange again. Let me please have the sense, the gift from you to see you for who you are and for what you are, and the wisdom to cast off this ridiculousness of loving this partially redeemed slowly rotting sack of you-know-what, speaking only for myself. But y'all are just like me. Because <laughs> we're, that's who we are. At the foundation of our prayers, at the foundation of our mission, at the foundation of anything, any role we have in ministry, should be the glory and honor of God father son and holy spirit that when the universe is all made right that will be the that will be the rule that will be the norm the lord will be known and valued and treasured and exalted and set apart and our greatest joy and happiness will be in him all right and you can pray this at all levels of the onion so I just was emphasizing because it's true and I spend a lot of time in my own prayers like asking for that reality to happen inside of me personally. But I also want the Lord to be honored in my marriage, and in my family, in my church, in my work. I want him to be honored in our country. That's becoming harder and harder. I want him to receive the glory and honor. I want Jesus to receive the Inheritance of the nations that he deserves in all of the world? When I was driving up here, I was listening to a country station, and there's a song called, I Don't Dance. Or maybe I Can't Dance, I don't remember. I've only heard it once before. And like, Does anybody know the song? No. Okay. You do know the song. What's it called? I don't know. Well, I think I don't dance. I don't dance. Okay. So, I don't really... Other than like the white boy shuffle thing I learned in high school because you had to do that to get girls to kiss you later in the night. But um, I'm fascinated by line dances because if you are familiar with it, all it has to do is the music starts and like people pour on the dance floor and they kind of fall in and they start, you know, whatever. I don't know how to do that. But this is the stupidest analogy I've ever come up with on the run. But this is what the Lord's Prayer is like. Like, he gives you a pattern that you can do with other people, even if you're bad at dancing. And it's a lot better, probably, than you trying to make a new dance of your own, especially if you're not a good dancer. Like, that's why it's better than ACTS. Because ACTS, you have to kind of generate that stuff in your heart and mind. Like here, he gives you a framework. He gives you some steps to follow you can freestyle later on if you want to wobble a little different than everybody else right okay secondly after that's established this is the cry of a missions conference isn't it this is a political statement we're asking that the kingdom and will of god in heaven comes down to earth right now has it Yes and no, right? Alright, uh, I'm don't. i not making a political statement of any kind here except to say this. In 2012, 2016, there was an election and there was one guy going out and he had plans and policies and he got to pick people who were his cabinet positions and he got to influence legislation and he got to put out policy to the world and he got... He got term-limited out, and this other guy, who had way different ideas and different people, he wanted to do different things, he got elected, and we had a regime change in the United States of America. And by the grace of God, for 200 and however many years, it's been peaceful. Because usually that's not how it works, right? This morning in Second Samuel, uh, Saul and Abner both got axed so David could ascend. What we're asking for in this prayer is for a regime change. And it's, this is maybe a better analogy, okay? And this is, again, maybe for people who are too old, but in 1938, Hitler rose. In he began to invade Europe, and Poland included, and by 1940, they had completely routed the French army, and Hitler and his guys had this triumphant victory tour of Paris. That's the Eiffel Tower in the background. And there began what's known as the French Resistance, which if I could speak French, it sounds cooler when you have a act of resistance. And my French speakers in the back. Okay, so what did the Resistance want? They wanted the usurping crooked, evil, powerful, dark, enslaving Germans out of their dang country so they could get back to making delicious sauces and other foods (laughs) like that. (laughs) They wanted the bad guys out and the good guys back, right? That's what we want. Because the bad guy running this place right now is really bad. We don't like to admit it, but it's true. He's called the prince of the air. He's called the God of this world. He has this interaction with Jesus during Jesus' temptation where he says to Jesus, "Um, I'll give you all the authority, after he shows him in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. And Jesus did not say, that's not true. Louisville, Kentucky, United States of America, the world. There are dark demonic forces in charge of regions and places and cultures. The kingdom of the king on the left and the kingdom of the king on the right are vastly different. They couldn't be more different. The kingdom of God is full of justice and righteousness. It's founded on those things, loving kindness and faithfulness. We long for those things. What are the characteristics of the kingdom of this world? Not a rhetorical question. Money, oppression, power. About wraps it up, doesn't it, boys? Money, oppression, and power. Thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. The prayer is that the already here but not yet here kingdom of Jesus breaks through more and more. Like You're literally, if you're going to be a missionary in the truest sense of the word, let's let's add an adjective, a pioneer missionary going to a place where the gospel has not been or the church isn't established, you're literally invading enemy territory. You're going to try to strip an existing power of his strength and his control. He who blinds the eyes of unbelievers who's taken them captive to do his will you're you're going against that <clears throat> human trafficking racial violence addictions you name it it's it's part of the currency of the dark powers that destroys Death, miscarriage, famine, natural disasters these aren't going to happen when the king returns, when the world is made new, when we have a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, but they're here now, and we can pray, we can plead with the Lord for his kingdom to come. What's the oh, I think I think Charles Fielding's going to say this to us tomorrow or Saturday morning probably, but like the ultimate. Answer to this prayer is the return of the king, right? When all is made right. The places that you see there um, in that orange, yellow, orange color are the places where there is very little, in some places, effectively no Christian witness, no church. Those are the regions that remain to be taken. I don't do it every day, but in this part of the prayer, I start in Western Sahara and move to Mauritania and Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. I'm running out Libya, Egypt. Like I, I have people I know from different cities and countries that I get to pray for the kingdom of Jesus to break forth through them and with them and to pray for those missionaries who are on the vanguard of advancing the truth, who are going to take the biggest heat and the biggest fire, and face the hardest attacks and plead with God for His kingdom to break through. And He told us to do that. You pray for your kids, pray for your parents, you pray for the kingdom of Jesus to break into a school system, city government break the legs of Islam. And again, just showing my, you know what, I have to pray that my heart, mind, soul, and strength will be set to building His kingdom and not my kingdom. Not taking care of what I want and my agenda. Remembering again that He says, if anyone's going to come after me, he's got to take his cross, her cross, and follow me. That's how the kingdom breaks through in us. All right. I think we'll have to stop with give us this day our daily bread, it looks like. But this is an abrupt change. What we've just been talking about is the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. Now we're at the middle of the prayer. And here's this short statement. Give us this day our daily bread. This is, to the listeners who heard this for the first time, this is a very clear reference to a story in the Old Testament. What is that story? story of manna, right? So the Reader's Digest version is, all of Israel is oppressed for 400 years in Egypt. And God sends Moses and Aaron and rescues the people out through great signs and wonders that only the Lord could do. Where he triumphs over Egypt and the gods of Egypt. And then he rushes them through this amazing baptism, this Red Sea experience where they pass through the waters. And they come celebrating and singing and banging tambourines and praise after that happens, and two days later, they begin to... This is an international language. Grumbling is international. <laughs> and they complain to the Lord. And God says to them, to Moses, through Moses, I'm going to... You know where they are. They're in a desert, by the way. And there's like, like three million of them. Does that look like a place that would support three million There's no Hampton Inn in there, is there? There's there's not sufficient water or food for these people. This has to be a supernatural maintaining by God or it's not going to work. And he says, I'm going to give them what they need when they need it. And every day they can go out and find this manna on the ground and they can collect for themselves. Here's the story. I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. They'll go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. This is what the Lord has commanded, Moses said to them. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, it's about two liters worth. Each person you have in your tent, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Did that commandment, the last commandment, was that obeyed universally? What happened? Okay, so again, these are the steps, the line dance that he's shown us. Like, I'm telling you this story, and the principle is what? I'm going to give you what you need. You think, I think that this world we live in, especially the West, this old Disneyland that we live in, is great and is perfect for us to sustain us. But the truth is, this is a dry and dusty land. This is a land of snakes and scorpions. This is a place of testing. You really cannot be satisfied with the crap the world offers you. You think you can, but you can't. And the principle in prayer and in life is he's going to give us what we need when we need it in short little amounts. And we should ask him for it. Today, today I need to be able to love patience, please. Today, let me walk in humility. Today, let me have what you have for me today and not worry about tomorrow because you told me not to. The sins of the people in the desert were to grumble and to put the Lord to the test. Eventually to turn to idols and even to sexual immorality. Do you remember that part of the story? Those are the things that we will face as well. Those are the things that we can be warned in this part of the prayer today. Let me not turn to grumbling. Babies would die without their mothers, right? It's effectively the relationship we're supposed to have, like provision of what we need, even if we don't know what it is. I've I've often, I'm sure many of you have... Rejected what the Lord has given me. He made a mistake. He's not as clever as I thought he was. But of course, he gives what we need every day. All right. We have like just a short period of time, and I want to hit one more point after this. John 6 is Jesus basically saying, hey, that man of story... Your Father gave you manna from heaven every day, but here I am. I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. And you eat this bread, you never die. So part of the prayer at this time, part of our obedience, and part of our growth and intimacy with Jesus is to literally ask Him to feed us. Like, ask Him to explain to us the mystery of what He meant when He said, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. My... My flesh is real food, he said, and my blood is real drink. All right. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Um, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Say it really fast. So this is a request for forgiveness, first of all which is always a good thing to reflect and repent, right? Always. It's a good thing to remember that the blood of Jesus Christ takes away all our sins, that we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it is nonetheless always important every day to live in repentance. Okay, and the last thing, or maybe of two things I want you to understand, is that the Lord's Prayer, the way Jesus gave it, tells you how to do that too. Maybe not intuitively, but it's going to make perfect sense to you, I hope, when I say it. You work your way down the pyramid. This is what I mean. Lord, please forgive me for grumbling. For not being satisfied with what you're giving me every day. For putting you to the test. Forgive me for turning to idols of any kind. Or to thoughts of sexual immorality or sexual immorality. Please forgive me of that. And Lord, forgive me. That I haven't been committed to the advancing of your kingdom and your will on earth. And I've really been a little too committed to my own kingdom, my own world. And I want to repent of that. I want to make that right. And I want to turn. Lord, again, we're just dropping down the pyramid. I'm sorry that I haven't made you and your greatness and glory and your perfection and your desirability the main thing in my life. And the main thing that people see about me. I'm just repenting down the pyramid with the pattern that he gave us. Alright, we got to quit. You can't be forgiven, brothers and sisters, if you don't forgive. You can't be forgiven, brothers and sisters, if you don't forgive. People have done you wrong. Okay? Real or, or imagined, you believe that, and it's true. And they will do that till you die. And sometimes it's your mother, or your father, or your husband, or your wife, or somebody else, or whoever. Like, this is the part of the prayer that Jesus gave a little commentary. It's like, if you don't forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. You have to forgive everybody. If you can't do it today, you've got to do it tomorrow. But you've really got to do it today. You might have to do it every day. All right, and this really is the last thing I'm going to say. Let's say you've got an enemy, somebody who's really done you wrong. So the first fallback for Christian people is to say, I'm not going to try to take vengeance. The Bible tells me not to. I'm going to leave it up to the Lord to smash that son of a, <laughs> right? I'm going to read those imprecatory Psalms that talk about the man, the Taekwondo elbow coming to the head of my enemy. Okay, that's okay, but that's not really what Jesus says. He says you should try to be like your Father in heaven. And this is the thing that's really struck me. I hope I can communicate this. Like, when I go to the Lord on behalf of someone who has harmed me, who has, whatever they've done, really harmed me and really injured me, and I say, Lord, I'm going to obey your commandment by the Spirit's power to forgive on earth what, what I'm going to then ask you to forgive in heaven, and I'm not just going to stop there. I'm going to ask you to do for that person, my enemy, what you did for me. Grant that person repentance. Not to me, to you. Grant that person reconciliation with you. Bless that person. Help that person. You just did a Jesus thing. You just went on behalf of your enemy to the Lord. And I believe he hears those prayers more powerfully because you are truly being merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Thank you for climbing Mount Everest to come to this, and um, we better break. I'm sorry I didn't get through, but, yeah, I'll try to get it shortened, but that's not, yeah, all right, come (laughs) on.